Welcome everyone to today's Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Yardgensen. I'm Finar Yardgensen. And we're the co-directors of The Greenhouse and the folks who run this Book Talk series. We are very happy today to welcome Elizabeth Parker, um, who's going to be presenting her book, The Forest and the Eco-Gothic, The Deep Dark Woods in the Popular Imagination, which came out with Paul Grave Macmillan in 2020. And we're particularly pleased that Elizabeth could join us. We had originally scheduled the talk back in December, but that had to be canceled because of illness. So we're very happy uh, to have her on today. So Elizabeth, we'll give it over to you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, and yeah, I guess a good starting point is to say thank you so much for having me here today. Um, and I'm so genuinely thrilled to be part of this series. I think what you guys are doing is amazing and genuinely interdisciplinary and really, really exciting. Um, and thank you to everyone who's joined today. It's, it's absolutely amazing to see uh, all of the people in the room. Um, so yes, yeah, so I was asked to give uh, a little bit of a background on the book and a little bit of an introduction, which I'm going to do for kind of 10 or 15 minutes now. Um, and I thought I'd start off by sort of talking about how I came to write this project in the first place. And I think the kind of honest answer there is that it really did start from childhood. Um, so I've always been very kind of emotionally connected to the woods, I think it's fair to say. Um, so I grew up in Kent in England, which is a place with a lot of uh, ancient woodland there. Um, and I would spend a lot of time uh, in the woods when I was a kid and growing up through adolescence, walking my dog there in particular. Um, and something that I was always fascinated by was that I absolutely loved this space. It was where I went to be happy. It was where I went in the kind of darkest patches of my life, for kind of healing and solace. Uh, but it was also a space in which, in a split second, I could suddenly be very, very frightened and on edge and nervous. So that kind of dualistic nature of this space always fascinated me. Um, and I think growing up, I kind of saw that in the text that I was most interested in, which were often the texts talking about the forest, you'd see that kind of dualistic nature again. You'd see that sort of enchantment element. And then you see at the same time, very quickly, that kind of darkness and demonic element as well coming into conversation. Um, so I've always been drawn to these kind of stories. I was absolutely fascinated with fairy tales. I always liked the kind of darker versions, the ones that are kind of cleaned up a bit and made, made kind of happier. I was always like, oh, no, I want the darker version. Give me that. Uh, and getting older and seeing those, I've always found that extremely uh, alluring and interesting. Um, so eventually I did, I did my undergraduate in English literature and I ended up doing uh, an MPhil at Trinity College Dublin in Ireland. And there I ended up doing my master's dissertation on Little Red Riding Hood and kind of dark retellings of Little Red Riding Hood, which is, you know, it's dark already. It's darker than I think we, we give it credit for. Um, so that kind of led me further into the woods and, pardon the pun, kind of led me off the path more and more. And that's how I got kind of interested in this to begin with. And I thought, you know, what's interesting me the most overall uh, is this forest environment, is this kind of dark, eerie space. And to begin with, I thought, you know, this must have been done before, like people must have been writing on this for centuries. Surely I can't write on the Gothic forest. There must be loads of books on it. And I found it really interesting to discover that while there's an enormous amount of rich material that you can read, there was no book in existence already that was just on why we fit the forest, just on the Gothic forest. So I thought, this is a terrifying task and a massive task, but I'm going to try, try and do that. Um, so I was very lucky to have years uh, where I 
spend time kind of exploring and reading those different texts, fictional texts, critical texts, etc. Uh, and that's when I came across something called the Eco-Gothic that my wonderful supervisor, Benice Murphy, uh, recommended to me. And I'd never heard of it before. And I think, you know, it, it's still quite a new term. It's only about kind of 10 or so years old. Um, but it was a really kind of interesting starting point for kind of having some theory to ground this in. Uh, and essentially what the, what the Eco-Gothic does is it brings together the words ecology uh, or eco-criticism um, and the Gothic, and we start to look at what happens when you juxtapose those two those two ideas. What happens when you look at the nature that exists in Gothic, uh, and you look at the Gothic that we kind of read into or put into nature or find there already. Um, so I started with uh, the essays that you know a lot of people start with, with Tom J. Hillard, Simon C. Estock, big names like that, sort of looking. Uh, at people starting to talk about, you know, what about our fears of nature? What about the nasty underbelly of nature? Because eco-criticism traditionally, it kind of started off uh, with more kind of emphasis on nature loving, on nature celebrating, and less on kind of nature fear and nature questioning. Um, and in a lot of these texts, there were kind of this, this sort of call to arms to say, let's talk about this more, particularly given the fact that, you know, our relationship to nature is not idyllic. It's, it, it's, <laughs> To be frank, it's not going well. Um, so let's start to explore and unpack that because it's, you know, it's important. Um, so I, uh, you know, so I started to explore this this term, eco-gothic, and to read everything I could get my hands on where people were using it, um, and found that fascinating as well because there would often be a lot of contradiction. I think there still is a lot of contradiction. You'll see people using the words eco-horror and eco-gothic completely synonymously, as if they're identical. Um, and I personally don't think they are. I think they're importantly but subtly different. But I was very interested in, well, why have we got this new word coming in and what does that mean and what's it about? So I started to kind of explore what for me is the essence of it, which is all about um, ambience and environment and those kind of feelings of atmosphere and space. Um, but I, you know, I, I can go into that more in, in, in the questions if people want to, but that was the kind of theoretical grounding where I began. Um, but in terms of the starting point of the question that I really wanted to tackle, uh, it came down to our fear of the woods and why we fear the woods. Because you can see from, you know, we're not getting bored of these stories of horror in the woods that they're still coming up and, you know, you'll still talk to people about their like creepy experiences going camping or whatever it might be. Um, we obviously do still have this fear of the woods, even though, you know, on paper, we shouldn't you know, that the, the kind of statistics of people being killed by, by animals, by predators in the woods, it's, it's nothing compared to the kind of times when these fairy tales were coming out, but those fears are still with us. So that was kind of my beginning point of, okay, we fear the woods, that's evident, why? Um, so I spend a bit of time at the beginning talking about this quote from Sarah Maitland, where she says, inside most of us post-enlightenment and would-be rational adults, there is a child who is still terrified by the wild wood. And I really like this quote because it talks about what the kind of forest environment can do to you. That idea that we want to be post-enlightenment, but that's threatened by the woods. The idea that we want to be rational, but again, that's threatened by the woods. And we want to be adult, but we start to feel childlike. And I think that's, that's kind of the power uh, of fear in fiction for me anyway, is that it can so quickly make you feel like a small child again. And I think the environment of the forest has the power to do that very, very quickly. Um, and again, I, th I think something about the fear of the forest, which I really love talking about, is that everyone I find has something to say about it. So when you work in academia, um, often if you're at dinner parties or things like that, you're sort of terrified if someone's going to say, what do you write on? Because you think, oh, God, this is going to be really boring or really 
um, niche. Um, but I find that if I just say, well, you know, it's basically about the forest and, and I'm questioning why we fit the forest, how we fit the forest, all that sort of thing. Um, everyone has something to say, whether it's about their favorite fairy tale or a random story that they heard when they were a kid or some even just like a television advert that creeped them out. You know, there's something that people are like, oh, yeah, I can connect that in some way. And I absolutely love that about the subject. Um, so I thought it might be useful to talk a little bit about how I kind of structure uh, the book. So I approach it in two ways, talking about the why. So why do we fit the forest, as I've just touched on, and then talking about the how. So I look at why we fear the forest and I come up with seven reasons that I think uh, are the main reasons we fear the forest. And then I look at, well, how does that manifest in our fiction? And I divide our fiction according to how that manifestation takes place. Um, so the seven reasons that I've come up with, I've called the seven theses, which for anyone who's a big fan of monsters might recognize that I've pinched that from Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, who talks about the seven monster theories. Uh, and I also like the fact that it's a number seven, because when you start talking about fairy tale analysis, you've got these magic numbers of three and seven. So it was personally really, really satisfying to me that seven came up. I was like, oh, this is brilliant. Um, on a side note as well, I actually randomly wrote a section on the devil at one point, and I did a word count when I was in the middle of it, and it came up as 666, which was very eerie. But I think moments like that make me feel like, oh, I'm in the right place at the right time. This is good. Although that was a bit creepy. Um, so these seven theses of why we fear the forest. So I'll run through them quickly. So number one is that the forest is against civilization. So that's the kind of idea, the stereotypical idea of nature versus culture, uh, versus, um, yeah, nature versus culture, chaos versus order. And this idea that the forest is somehow anathema, it's somehow opposite to the kind of order of civilization. Um, and if you look at some roots of the etymology of wilderness, you've got definitions such as the wilderness is not under the control of man. So this idea that the forest is against order and control, inside versus outside, all of those sort of binaries. Uh, and this idea that nature has to be fought back, that it's always growing and that civilization itself, if you look at it in a kind of overall way, um, is a clearing in the wilderness. And we're clearing that and clearing that and clearing that. But nature is fighting back and growing very, very slowly and it must always be pushed away. And that, of course, is pregnant with Gothic potential. Um, the second idea is that the forest is associated with the past. Um, and, you know, you'll find a lot about Gothic being about fears of the return of the past, fears of our own regression, of us going backwards. I find it interesting that we talk about getting back to nature. We don't talk about just going to nature. We talk about going back as if it's somehow behind us and we've moved on in progress. Um, and I think there's something interesting in the forest in that it's very timeless you know unless you're kind of an expert in being able to age trees just on site when you're in a wood and there's no sign of civilization it could be a wood from a thousand years ago it could be a wood from today you get that kind of weird sort of timeless sense in the forest um the third reason is that the forest is a landscape of trial uh it's an environment in which we're tested and often that test is just to survive to stay alive particularly in horror the test is to escape to get out of it um, when we're talking about fairy tales, they're so kind of riddled in this sense of trial. Um, and there's a quote I really like from Francis Spufford, where they open their book saying, you are alone in a dark wood, now cope. And I just think that's brilliant. I just think that immediately kind of sets up the scene. It's one sentence that you can see immediately, that kind of sense of trial and threat that you've got to survive physically and you've got to survive psychologically as well. Um, the fourth reason is that the forest is a setting in which we are lost. And I think this is an absolutely enormous one. 
um, you know, the forest embodies bewilderment and of course the very word being bewildered is tied to that idea of being in the wilderness and being kind of decentered and uncertain about where you are. Um, you've got that idea that in the forest we walk in circles, which is something that is scientifically proven as well. And, you know, Rene Descartes once said, all you need to do to get out of a wood is walk in a straight line and you'll be fine. But we can't do that. Like as humans will think we're walking in a straight line, but we don't. We walk in circles and we get kind of trapped and we're looping in there. Um, so you've got that sense of kind of physical disorientation, but again, that kind of sense that you might lose yourself as well. Uh, reason number five, the forest is a consuming threat. So this idea that when you're in the forest, the biggest threat, the scariest threat is that you're going to be eaten. This is what we fear. You're going to be eaten by a monster, whether that's a real monster in existence, something that we can prove scientifically, or whether it's a more fantastical creature. Um, but there's also that idea that the forest itself is some kind of gaping, awful mouth that is going to kind of take us in and consume us and imbibe us into itself. And we'll become part of that nature. And again, there's that kind of threat of not liking the nature and the human to kind of intermix and not remain distinct. Um, and there's that idea that in the forest, we are the endangered species. The sixth reason is that the forest is the site of the human unconscious. And I think when we're talking about the forest and particularly the enchanted or the Gothic forest, I think it's important to remember that, yes, we're talking about you know, literal forests in some ways, but we're also talking about landscapes of the mind. Um, and we're very much talking about kind of psychology there when we're discussing these environments. Um, and the forest, very interestingly, is, is a big image uh, in discussions of psychoanalysis. Um, and something that you know I find fascinating but isn't talked about very much is that if you go back to Freud's essay on the uncanny, one of the examples he gives is getting lost in a forest, of trying to walk in that straight line, trying to get out of the forest, but coming back again and again to some unfamiliar landmark and how that's utterly uncanny and frightening to us. Um, you've also got lots of discussions of, you know, the, the images of the forest lend themselves very nicely, not very nicely to discussions of the unconscious with the idea of the kind of ego above ground and spreading with the leaves and the trees and then all that darkness of the roots underneath and all that darkness of the forest generally. Um, and the idea as well of kind of Jung's collective shadow. And there's uh, a very wonderful book um, by Robert Pogue Harrison, which is called Forests, the Shadow of Civilization, which kind of ties back to that first idea of the forest being that kind of darker underbelly or version of civilization. Um, and finally, the seventh reason I have is the forest is an unchristian space. Um, so there's a lot of writing on how um, the Bible can be interpreted uh, to kind of tell us to hate the wilderness, like good nature is cultivated, good nature is a garden, you know, when you think of Eden, it's very tended, it's very perfect, uh, and wilderness only comes around, um, only comes about with kind of human sin and thin things going wrong. Um, you've also got that idea uh, that once you go into the wilderness, you lose God, you lose that closeness with God, or you encounter the wrong God or the wrong gods. So there's a lot of ideas as well around kind of paganism and stereotypes about like the negative idea, this kind of terror-ridden idea of pagans, of blood-soaked groves, of human sacrifice in the woods, of all that sort of nastiness and darkness happening, uh, and take that to the logical conclusion. And you've got the fear that the wilderness is actually the domain of the devil and that this is where you're going to meet Satan. This is where things are going to go really, really wrong and you're going to be tempted, whether that's you know, manifesting the wolf from Little Red Riding Hood or whether it's a more kind of obvious devil like you see in films like The Witch. Um, 
But I'd say after, after kind of introducing each of these seven ideas, um, it's important to remember that the forest is that kind of double-sided coin with the enchanted and the dark on the other side. So for every single one of these kind of dark theses, it's got its enchanted version uh, mirror image. So for example, yes, the forest is a place where you lose yourself, but in the enchanted forest, it's a place where you find yourself. You go in there to do soul searching, to discover who you are and kind of find your way back to yourself. And while I've just been talking about it as an anti-Christian space, in the enchanted version, it might be the place where you find God, where you go there, and that's where kind of goodness is rediscovered. Um, and again, this idea that forest is against civilization, that it's somehow bad or inferior, again, you can see the kind of flip side of that is that perhaps the forest is the better version, and perhaps that's kind of where we can be pure again, and it's superior to civilization as we know it. So that's the kind of why, in a nutshell, of why I think we fear the forest. And then I divide the book up accordingly um, into how that manifests. So how does that, you know, come to, to come to be, <coughs> excuse me, read in our different fictions, in our books and TV shows and films, etc. Um, so I start off obviously with a kind of grounding in theory and setting the scene, but then when it comes to the how, I divide it into three main categories. Um, the first of these is called "What if it's the trees, the living forest?" So that's when I start to look at okay, what if it's the trees themselves? And you think about, um, you know, there's there's a, a scene in The Evil Dead, which I'm sure many people in this room might be aware of, where a woman goes out and gets attacked in the woods and she comes back and someone says, oh my God, did, did someone do this to you? Did something do this to you? What was in the woods that did this to you? And she says, no, it was the woods themselves, themselves, they're alive. So this is what that whole chapter is devoted to, is like, is it ever the woods? themselves and can it be the woods themselves and there's kind of some interesting things going on there because I would argue that in a lot of the texts where we think it is the woods themselves it's actually not they're actually being animated or infected by a human by a demon by something else so it's actually very very rarely that we encounter that example of the woods themselves being the kind of threatening uh being the threat um then I move into uh, the next chapter, which is called Where the Wild Things Are, Monsters in the Forest. And this is where I think understandably a lot of people start where they go, well, you know, how does it manifest? It's full of monsters. That's the kind of terrifying uh, nature of the woods. Um, so I look at all sorts of different monsters there. There's a, there's a big section called Ambiguous Monsters, which covers all sorts of different kind of weird and wonderful creatures that the human imagination has come up with. Uh, but I also look in particular at what to me are the two kind of classic monsters of the woods, um, which come back again to fairy tales. So on the one hand, it's the wolf coming from Little Red Riding Hood. We have so many wolf texts set in the woods with the big bad wolf. Uh, and number two, the witch. So going back to Hansel and Gretel and that kind of fear of the witch that waits for you in the woods. Um, and then finally, uh, I move to humans in the wilderness. So moving from monsters, where quite often with monsters, the twist uh, is that the monsters are actually us, right? The monsters are projections of what we don't like about ourselves, what we need to cast out. Uh, or in some texts like The Village, and I'm so sorry, spoiler alert, it's actually revealed that it's humans dressing up as monsters. So finally, in the last chapter, I look at kind of human communities in the woods. Um, and that chapter is called It Isn't Right to Build So Close to the Woods, Humans in the Forest. Um, and that quote, It Isn't Right to Build So Close to the Woods, is from a wonderful book called The Ceremonies, which is a brilliant horror text and one of my absolute favorites. But I think it encapsulates that idea that we're quite sort of uncomfortable about building really close to the woods or building in the woods. Um, so looking at the kind of darker side of human civilizations in the woods, looking at hillbillies, looking at 
backwards folk. Um, and when I say backwards, I mean a kind of pun there with backwards as in the opposite of forwards, but backwards as in like the woodland uh, environment as well. And I think there's quite a lot uh, to be said about that. Um, but also in that chapter, I look not only at kind of these dark communities, but I look at what happens when we try to idealize the woods, because I think there's a lot of Gothic potential in that as well. When we go, you know, so many of our horror texts set in the woods start off with humans going, right, you know, civilization is too much. Even if it's just I want to go on holiday to a cabin, let's get away from it all. Let's go into this good uh, positive space. But then it all goes wrong. Um, and there's a lot in there as well, I think, about kind of the death of nature and our fragmentation from nature and the idea that maybe we don't have a place in the wilderness now at all. And the very definition of wilderness kind of excludes our presence anyway. That's what the wilderness is. So I think there's a real kind of sadness and upset going on there, particularly as our relationship to the non-human gets worse and worse increasingly. Um, so finally, I just wanted to say that something else that runs throughout my book is uh, kind of ironically and maybe unexpectedly is a real love of nature. So, um, you know, I've had family members say to me, oh, but I thought you liked the wilderness. I thought you loved nature. Why are you writing this nasty, horrible book? Why, why do you hate it? And I'm like, no, I, I don't. I actually I deeply, deeply love it. And I think that actually Gothic has a place in re-enchanting nature to us. Um, and for me, that's really, really important. And I think for me, that ties to the idea that I think we're now very cynical in a lot of ways. Um, and I think fear has a real power to displace cynicism like nothing else. So when I'm at my most cynical, I'll be thinking, no, no, this is fact, this is made up, this is fantasy, this is whatever. But if I'm a little bit nervous and creeped out because I've just watched a text like the Blair Witch Project and I'm walking through the forest, it might not be a totally enjoyable experience. It might be quite uh, unpleasant and nervous, but at the same time, it re-enchants that space for me. It brings it alive to me. So I just wanted to end with my introduction there with a quote that I love from Joseph Campbell, where he says, myth wakes and stirs in the wilderness. And for me, that's absolutely true. So yeah, that's my kind of introduction. Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, there's certainly a lot of things one could uh, connect with her. Uh, lots of thoughts that it raised with me. Just first, um, you know, reminder to the audience: if you have questions or comments, then uh, let us know in the chat, uh, and we will call on you. Uh, but I thought I would start as a well, as a historian, uh, actually, because I was thinking about one of the comments you made initially of. You know how this this kind of fear of the woods is still here yeah. but the woods have changed quite dramatically over I mean, the last 200 years and more so what is it that makes this fear remain is it now something that is being maintained in well in literature in films in media in general or is it something deeper uh in in a way I guess the human relationship with nature. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I definitely do. Um, so I, I think our fears of the woods are getting worse as we become more removed from them. So when you say it's kind of changed a lot, and you're absolutely right. Um, and I think one of the biggest things that has changed is is how close that is to us. So when you go back to kind of you know when the Grimm brothers were writing and things, um, these things were very very like 
uh, fresh in the memory when you were talking about witches, you've just had, you know, people being tried and executed as witches. Uh, when you're talking about wolves, um, you've had, you know, the expression wolves at the door um, apparently came from wolves scratching at the door of people who were starving uh, and thinking they could come in and eat you. Um, and I think the more distanced we get from the woods, kind of the more terrifying they become to us. So I think that kind of change and that kind of fragmentation uh, makes them more popular. And I, I, I think, you know, rural Gothic and kind of uh, wilderness Gothic is getting bigger and bigger as it's becoming more other to us. And I think that's frightening because it's unknown. I think it's also frightening because there's an awareness that it's dwindling and that that is very much our fault and that the decisions we're making every day are kind of supporting that. So that would be um, the first thing that I think of. Thank you. Uh, we have the first question that came up in the chat. Um, so Mike is wondering about um, you know, race and class and how that relates to your argument. Um, I would perhaps also want to extend that. Just like, is this a Western phenomenon? I mean, European um, white settler uh also uh i see now ted also asked you know can we throw in gender and sexuality so so who is this uh, relationship with nature or the forests then uh valid for mm. so i mean also the rural urban divide so there's some specificity there yeah uh so i think i think that's a really good question or really good questions um but enormous <laughs> enormous questions um, so I think something that I'm quite passionate about is, uh, so I run, I run something called the Gothic Nature Journal, um, which is all about eco-horror and eco-gothic. And something that I feel very strongly is that we need a lot more work on decolonizing the eco-gothic. Um, because right now, a lot of the writers that we're talking about, a lot of the people I've mentioned, uh, are predominantly white, Western, privileged. Um, and I think there's a there's a hell of a lot more work and very, very important, very interesting work to do in other areas. Um, when you talked about uh, class, Mike, the first thing I was thinking was, you know, I mentioned there about um, wilderness communities in, in the chapter where I talk about people living in the woods and, and how that's kind of uh, conceived of as frightening. And I think there's a lot going on very problematically, I think, with class there. And, you know, I mentioned hillbillies in passing, but that's, that's very much uh, tied to class. There's, there's lots of ideas about backwards folk, you know, they're, they're poorer folk, they're somehow, you know, closer to superstition and that's bad, or this is how it's presented um, in these texts, it's more primitive. So there's, there's lots of kind of really quite dark commentaries going on there, I think, about um, ideas of class and ideas that, you know, if you're more upper class and more civilised, you're going to be living in, in, in the cities. Um, and if you're not, you're going to be living in the woods and that's somehow bad and that's somehow frightening. So I think, you know, monsters always show us what we're scared of. They always reflect what we're frightened of, right? Um, so I think there's a lot um, of interesting things to be said there. And I think equally you could bring in discussions around race and monsters potentially as well, again, in quite problematic ways. Um, and then in terms of gender, which you touched on there, um, I think there's an enormous amount to be said about gender. Um, particularly about, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people in this room have heard of eco-feminism, which is where we uh, bring together eco-criticism and feminism. And something that I've seen a lot in the text that I've been talking about um, is a real kind of rage there um, from, you know, the environment is often stereotypically feminized, right? It's, you know, kind of mother nature uh, and women as well. It's this idea that both women and nature have been backgrounded, have been put to the back somehow. Um, 
and that they're not going to stand for it anymore. And, and, and then you see these kind of texts of revenge, revenge of nature, revenge of women. And so I think there's a lot to be said um, about gender in these texts as well. Well, so I was wondering about the trees in these forests. So do you find that particular kinds of of trees generate the eco gothic feeling? So I'm thinking here, you know, pine trees versus oaks, um, you know, or versus you know, a maple, so deciduous. So, so how do people react to that? Do they, do they tend to be one kind of forest? in terms of what the trees are. But and then I was also thinking the way the trees are. So is do people write this when it's a productive forest? So it's actually a forest plantation um, or is it only things that are not cultivated? Um, and then what constitutes, of course, non-cultivation is interesting to think through. Definitely. Um, so in terms of individual trees, this is something that I'm starting to have a look at recently. So I've, I've bought some beautiful books on kind of stories of different types of trees. What, what I focus on so far predominantly is the kind of image of a mass amount of trees together as that kind of forest uh, collectively. But definitely, I think there's something about, <coughs> excuse me, there's something about age. So I think trees that live for longer um, often get more kind of myth associated with them. But I was going to say for anyone interested in that, there's um, a wonderful book by Alexander Porteous called, I think it's The Forest in Folklore and Mythology. Um, and he goes into all these different specific species of trees and the different kind of uh, stories that are related to them. And there's some fascinating stuff there, you know, about kind of fairy trees and island, um, holly trees, if you take a leaf, different things, that, you know, different awful things that will happen to people in these beliefs that you start bleeding from your arm or, you know, all, all sorts of different kind of creepy, creepy things tied to different types of trees. But I think the honest answer is that I would like to look more into kind of individual species of trees, definitely. Um, and the second question about the kind of the cultivation, I think there's this idea with a lot of these texts that you've gone into forests away from humanity, but at the same time, um, the people who are cultivating these environments are often the first to be picked off or punished in some way or to have a significant role. So, you know, again, going back to Little Red Riding Hood, we've got the woodcutter as the hero, that kind of image of um, man who controls nature, who chops it down, who uses it for firewood, for paper, for whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, again, and I'm thinking of you know, books like Uprooted by Naomi Novik, I think that's how you say her name. Um, there's again this kind of mass punishment for the people who have been cultivating. They're kind of the first to go, the first to get into trouble. Um, but then by association, we're, we're all guilty because, you know, we're all using wood and something. You know, I'm sitting at a wooden desk right now. You go to the toilet, you're going to use trees. You know, we're absolutely, um, you, you know, uh, buried in it every day. So, yeah. So we have a question from uh, Ted about the difference between forests on land and underwater forests. Is that something that you considered looked at? I mean, also within the, the rise of the blue humanities, there's discussion about kelp, but you also have hybrid places like swamps. So is there some material there you think for digging into? Definitely. And thank you for your, for your question, Ted. So uh, this hasn't been announced yet, but the next issue of the Gothic Nature Journal is going to be on the dark blue Gothic. Uh, so it's going to be ocean themed. This is something that's uh, getting a lot, a lot of attention in the eco Gothic. Um, 
and I think it's fascinating to think about underwater forests. And I don't know if you if you've seen it, Ted, but I recently watched um, a documentary called My Octopus Teacher. Uh, and he and this man basically goes out to see this octopus every day, and he swims in this beautiful kelp underwater forest. Um, and all I was thinking was, oh my goodness, underwater forest! I haven't thought about this, and there's there's more there's more to do here. So it's something that I haven't looked at myself. Um, but there is a kind of growing body of work, and if that's something that you're interested in yourself, um, definitely look out for the CFC because we'd love to hear from you. That's a good tip. Uh, Sarah wants to know more about uh, witches and ecofeminism, uh, in particular, good tips for uh, recent literature uh, that features uh, witches and ecofeminism. Yeah. Um... So witches, uh, yes, I think it's difficult to talk about witches in the woods without talking about ecofeminism, to be honest. I think I think there's always that kind of gendered element of revenge there. And I think the witch is a symbol that has been, um, you know, quite rightly appropriated by feminism because it, it's, you know, even though there's obviously very problematical descriptions of witches, it's nonetheless an image of power, of female power. Um, and something you see a lot in these texts uh, with witches or with witch-like women um, is this kind of parallel between nature is only out of control when a woman's out of control. And I think it's Jack Zipes who, I think he talks about Disney films and he, and he says you know, when you start looking at, um, you know, wicked evil women like Maleficent, etc., um, nature starts to behave badly because you've got this kind of unruly woman and she's somehow infecting the land around her. You see it again in um in Snow White and you know and all these kind of classic uh fairy tales so I'd say definitely re-exploring kind of fairy tales is a good place uh to start with that but also I think I mentioned it earlier but I'm a big fan of Robert Eggers's The The Witch the film um I also think there's interesting things to be said about the Blair Witch Project as well uh just generally about that kind of idea of female power and female revenge and that idea of siding with the monster which is always something that has really appealed to me because you know we tend to kind of go straight in with that sort of anthropocentric lens of oh my goodness we're the endangered species and aren't these monsters bad isn't this environment bad but the idea even of humans being the endangered species in a natural environment is absolutely preposterous you know it's absolutely ridiculous we're not the ones who are endangered uh, but we retell that story sort of to justify our fears to justify our actions I suppose because if nature's frightening then yes we need to subdue it yes we need to fight back all that sort of thing um but yes I'll, I'll have a think because i'm sure there are other texts uh, and i'm blanking a little bit of, of uh, really good witch texts but i will i'll come back to you on that so andras was wondering about uh differences between approaches of uh hot literature and genre literature so think about cormac carthy's the orchard keeper uh or brian catling's the war war as two examples would you i'm so sorry would you mind repeating that i missed the beginning uh if you see or recognize differences between the approaches uh, i mean i don't know this concept of hot literature so h-a-u-t-e mm -hmm. yeah hot like so, a, I don't, upper I don't, maybe yeah. um and genre literature so yeah. so i guess do you see differences in uh what might be a good question is differences in the type of genre that this eco um horror eco gothic takes place in so you mentioned fairy tales as a as a genre um but then you have different kinds of genre that you deal with and perhaps even you've mentioned some film so how, how do you 
think it applies in moving into these different kinds of literature? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I want to say I'm, I'm afraid I don't know uh, Hort literature, but I'm going to immediately Google it <laughs> when I come off. But if, if you want to kind of jump in and, and say what it is, please do, because, um, yeah, but but following on from what Dolly has said there, um, yes, but this is something I talk about in my introduction, which I think everyone does in their introduction to, the, to their book. It's what, um, you know, I have a friend who calls it the ask covering section where you're kind of like, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm not doing. Um, and something I talk about there is I'm talking about Gothic forests wherever they might appear so I'm, I'm you know I'm talking mainly of course about horror in the woods stories um but also I talk about texts which aren't obviously horror texts in themselves but the gothic forest kind of comes in um and I had an external examiner who said when he was reading my work he couldn't stop seeing them everywhere and I think they really do appear across all types of different genres you know I remember even watching um Pretty Little Liars which is the kind of uh, teen show, teen American show, and then there's a whole season with like Gothic Forest, and you're like, where did that come from? Um, so you do see them uh, in very, very different spaces. You know, I think I mentioned advertising as well, all sorts of different genres. Um, and of course, like Dolly was saying, in fiction and in film. Um, but I do think they manifest or they function quite similarly um, because it's a language, right? It's, it's kind of a, a language of symbols where we're, re we're being told to be frightened. And I think that's where it comes back to those seven theses where even if you're in the middle of kind of a comedy or romantic film of some kind, but then you've got this eerie element coming in, it will start to play in that way where maybe the characters have got lost. Maybe um, suddenly there's a sense of trial or something. So it starts to function uh, in that way, regardless of genre, I think. So uh, Greg was asking, you know, this seems like a very, well, big topic. Uh, how did you select and arrange your source material? More technical question. Yeah. Um, so to begin with, I was just getting my hands on anything kind of vaguely contemporary because I was also trying to to fill a gap that hadn't been done. And so this, the work that had been done so far was on things like, you know, there's enormous amounts of work on kind of Tolkien and the good forest and the bad forest or medieval stories, uh, medieval bestiaries and how those relate to forest. Um, so I knew that I wanted to do um, mostly contemporary. So I do 20th and 21st century uh, fiction right up to the kind of now, which which meant that, you know, as I was finishing um, putting my book together, I was going, oh, no, I need to add this book, this film in that's just coming. At some point, we just have to <laughs> we just have to stop. Um, and there's an awful lot. So I think, we, you know, I spent as much time as I could watching and reading as much as I could get my hands on and then started to draw it out thematically. So there's books that I, books or films or TV shows that I think of as kind of the forest giants. Um, so these would be things like the Evil Dead franchise, the Blair Witch Project, uh, Twin Peaks, the original and the remake in the film. Um, so I'd, I'd give those kind of a lot of time and airtime, but I'd also start to talk about the others, weaving them into arguments. So I knew I had my kind of main ones, uh, but I also wanted to bring in lesser known forest films. And, you know, I've been very lucky to discover amazing, weird little indie texts that have been a real joy to look at. Um, but I think that's why, you know, when, when I was talking in my introduction there about how I structured the book with the kind of why are we frightened and then the how does it manifest? Um, I started off with all these texts kind of scribbling down all over my walls. I looked like a serial killer trying to get all these different connections between, well, how are they manifesting? And then started to see these patterns. So that's how I started to organize them. But something I noticed quite quickly is that the kind of forest giants or the, or the ones that kind of go into, you know, real kind of analysis of what's going on with the forest, they could fit in more than one category quite often. 
Um, so something like The Village, which is an M. Night Shyamalan film, which I absolutely love. And I know that's controversial because lots of people hate it, but I do. Um, but it's got monsters. It's got bits where the woods seem to be coming alive. It's got a human community in the woods. So there's kind of that caveat at the beginning of like, this, this is an enormous to topic and it is inevitably messy in some places, but this is one way of approaching and talking about it and making sense of it. So Verity has a question here. I mean, introduced by her own forest story. Uh, she could tell later if she wants, but, uh, but she was wondering about how or why the Gothic uh, contributes to world building. So the fantasy world creation uh, of, of woods and fiction. Do you see that nature in a particular forest is integral to the construction of fantasy worlds? I mean, we talked also about Tolkien just now, so. Um, so I, th I think I heard that, but that was about uh, how does the Gothic contribute to world building? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it massively does. So I think that that's kind of coming back to that idea of ambience that I was talking a little bit about earlier. Is, um, and when I'm thinking about, you know, I think I touched on, I spent a lot of time thinking about eco-horror and eco-Gothic and how they're different. Um, and for me, I sort of looked at those words in isolation thinking, well, you know, what do I think of when I think of horror? What do I think of when I think of Gothic? And I'm reading all these different instructions and what they're saying. Um, and for me, gothic is really tied to world in a way that I think, you know, horror can be, but that's more tied to action for me. And when I think of the word gothic, I immediately think of setting. I think of castles, convents, forests, ice skates, haunted mansions, you know, all, all those different kind of worlds that are very much kind of grounded in place. Um, so I think gothic and the eco-gothic definitely contributes to world building enormously. And I think the forest you know, in, in, in the way that I'm talking about it, we're trying to move away from that idea of it's a background setting, right? It's, it's saying, you know, that what about the setting as, as um, character? What about kind of this world as a really kind of three-dimensional space and what that means to us? So yeah, I think it absolutely contributes. Simon had a question about um, um, I mean, the dual nature of, of forests that you talked about. So also the, not just eco-Gothic, but also the enchantment. Uh, do you see the enchantment as a counterpoint to the, well, the scary side of the forest, uh, or are they interrelated, or what is the relationship between the two? Yeah, uh, really interesting question. So I, I think they are interrelated, and I think, I think you, I think you can have the enchanted forest without the gothic forest in certain spaces, and I'm thinking of kind of. Well, to an extent, with, with your kind of um, happier, nicer children's stories, but I think there's often a hint of it at the edge. But I think when you're talking about the Gothic forest, I think the enchanted is much more present there. You know, again, I, I talked about you know, some of the kind of stereotypical setups of these horror films um, where you, you start off wanting something good. I mean, yes, we have horror stories as well, like The Blair Witch, where it's like, oh, hey, let's go and film this and do something obviously silly. <laughs> um, but you also have a lot of texts where people are trying to heal their marriages, um, heal themselves, uh, go and do something good. And they're seeking that kind of enchantment of that soul searching of finding yourself. But then you have the Gothic. And I think the Gothic forest is not frightening without the enchanted forest. I think if you haven't got that kind of idea of something that could be good, that could then go wrong, I think that power of it going wrong is much less frightening. So I, I, I think they are absolutely interrelated. We have another question from Laura here um, about, I guess it's the agency of, of forests also, because um, she was wondering if you've noticed a trend towards avenging nature type texts. 
um, as the relationship between nature and force and people gets more and more strained over time. Yes, definitely. Um, so I think when we're talking about um, the agency of the forest, I think that's that's kind of immediately uh, quite a controversial topic, even though we might not realise that it is. Um, and something that I come back to here is, is there's a lovely book called The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Wollaban. Um, and he talks, and I think it's quite early on, he talks about how we conceive of nature and plants and trees. And he'll say, you know, if you ask a child, is a, is a tree living? Um, they'll tell you, yes. Um, of course it is, it's growing, it's green, it's just stuff. But at the same time, they and we as adults will conceptualize trees as objects. So you've got that kind of tension immediately where yes, it's alive, but we also deny them agency in some way. And it's only when you start to see kind of um, sped up footage of trees and plants growing that you start to see that there's a very kind of, you know, sentient is the wrong word, but there's a deliberate um, logic to it that I think we often forget about because you know trees move at a speed that is very different from ours and you know again I'm thinking of Tolkien and, and kind of the Ents deliberating for hundreds of years on a kind of time scale that is so uh, foreign to us in some ways um, so I think that kind of idea about forests having agency having life being alive being animate in some ways is something that's kind of uh, immediately quite tricky and interesting and something that we struggle to uh, to recognize and you know I'm thinking again coming back to Shyamalan who had a film called The Happening where you know it's the trees that are the bad thing and that they're, they're, they're emitting this pollen to um, have us all kill ourselves and different things and it's actually it's a very very environmental film and it's very much kind of based in the revenge of nature when we've gone too far but the the I mean maybe this is partly to do with acting and directing but I think it's also to do with content uh, the main reaction to that film was, wasn't it terrible and wasn't it hilarious? Like absolutely laughable, the idea that trees could be alive and that trees could fight back. Um, and I think that reveals, you know, quite um, well the sort of arrogance of humans when it comes to denying agency of any or agency in any way that we recognise as kind of the living green. Um, I'm sorry, I feel there was a second part of that question that I've forgotten. No, I think, I mean, that that did cover it well, so. I had a question about um, childhood here. So several times you've, you've talked about um, children or they've come up. How do you think these stories function? I mean, do they function differently with a different audience as far as the child goes? But is there also something about the child's view that is invoked by the authors of these stories um, that, that carries through that is what makes it, in some sense, eco-Gothic? Yes, definitely. I think that's a really interesting question. Um, so yeah, I think, I think I talked a little bit in my introduction about how I liked, uh, you know, when I was a child, I liked the, the darkness of fairy tales. And I think you know, I think, I think there is an allure there to children, and I, I can't remember which critic it is, but there's a critic who says, you know, everyone loves, you know, the children love Little Red Riding Hood and they want her to go to the cottage with Wolf. You know, there's this kind of frisson and excitement that you might not completely understand, but there's some kind of desire there to go, ooh, what's that about? And I want to know more. Um, in terms of the child's view, I think definitely. Um, and I think a lot of that comes down to how we see nature, how we see the world around us. And one of the main things when you're a child is that everything feels enormous and you feel quite small. And I think that's something that we lose when we get older to a certain extent. And, and it's often something we're looking for when we get back to nature. We want to feel small again. We want to feel overwhelmed. 
in a positive way. Um, and I think with a lot of the way that we kind of present nature, we present it in this way where we're the gods, right? Where we've got these kind of cameras for, for nature um, promotion and in you know, catalogs and whatever, we're looking down and saying, oh, look, we control all of this. We're the big things with all of the power. And, you know, even if nature is big, we have some kind of order or control over it. And I think, again, with fear, um, you start to feel more like the child again. So I think you've got that kind of child's view coming in where you start to feel frightened. And you've also got that child's view if you start to feel lost in an environment where you can't tell which way it is to get out or which way it is back to civilization. Um, you know, it's like it's like being the kid again in the supermarket where you lose your parent, that feeling of being lost, that feeling of being small, I think is absolutely putting the kind of child's view to the forefront. And again, coming back to fairy tales, our protagonists are mostly children. Um, and, you know, a lot of our Western fairy tales are children and their children lost in the forest. Um, and I think that in itself is, is interesting and something, something we return to in these texts. I'd like to ask about uh, the census, because um, we have talked, uh, I guess, about the visual aspect of it. Of course, the forest is dark, you can't see. I think there's also something with sight lines that you can't see very far. But I think probably also all the other senses are invoked uh, in discussions of forest, both with, in a way, the, the scarier side and also the enchanted side. So there's a positive and negative side to it. Do you see any trends? Are there particular senses that are invoked more than others? Does it change over time? Definitely. So I think the main one that comes to my mind is sound. I think sound is enormously important. And um, people will laugh at me because, you know, in, in theory, I love horror, but I'm also absolutely terrified of it. And uh, I've had to watch a lot of horror films on my own and and I both love it and absolutely hate it. Um, but I've, I've sort of discovered that if you watch them in the middle of the morning, that's the least scary time. But something that I do if I'm struggling the first time is I mute it because then it's so much less scary. Um, and, you know, films like The Blair Witch, you know, which absolutely terrified me, but other people have said to me, you know, it's boring, nothing happens. For me, so much of that, is sound because all you're seeing is like these panic shots of the woods for a lot of it it's just kind of one torchlight on some tree trunks and you don't see an awful lot or you see complete darkness in places um so i think sound is enormous in horror generally but i think in the forest as well it's that kind of idea of a twig snapping behind you or something kind of rustling in, in the in the leaves and you're thinking is that an animal is it something else so i think sound would be the first one that kind of comes to mind but I know as well that, you know, again, going back to my octopus teacher, which is a documentary that I mentioned a moment ago, this um, nature um, uh, photographer, he talks about how we've lost our senses a bit as we've kind of evolved. So we, we've actually become, you know, very lazy in how we use our senses. So yes, of course, we, we see and we hear and all that kind of thing, but we can't track in the way that some humans do, some humans do in parts of the world, but a lot of us would have no idea how to read little signs in nature that little animals have been there or that they're moving in certain ways. And we've lost that sense of how to smell, how to spot, how to listen, how to feel kind of grooves in the earth and what all of that means. And I think in a lot of these texts, there's something about going back to nature and rediscovering those skills or wanting to, because again, I think there's that kind of sadness that fragmentation of, oh, we've lost that. And maybe that doesn't, for me anyway, I have some kind of emotional reaction to that where that doesn't kind of sit right with me. So I think, there is more to be said about that. And I, I met a wonderful PhD student the other day who is starting some work specifically on the senses and the forest. There's going to be more on that in a few years, hopefully. 
That's good. Uh, a question then from Reint here. Um, given that the Gothic in film, in literature, and music has been connected with, I mean, sex or seduction, sensuality so often, uh, can you see such an element in the eco-Gothic literature that you talk about? Yes, I can. Yes. Um, so I talk quite a lot about this in one of my chapters. You know, I touched on eco-feminism earlier and the idea of a sort of shared <coughs> rage and anger between women and, and nature itself. Um, and something there is, you know, we talk sometimes about the rape of nature um, and how... <sighs> That kind of idea of mankind, and I'm saying mankind instead of humankind deliberately there, uh, is trying to control um, and to dominate nature in, in a way that often the kind of language that we use or the images that we use um, are quite sexual in a dark way, right? Um, and texts like Evil Dead, which you know are very famous for that scene in which um, a woman is raped by the forest. You know, she's literally molested by a tree, and it's unlike the happening it's not funny it's absolutely terrifying and and weird and there's something that you can kind of recognize there's something going on there and i think it's it's sort of a manifestation of reversing that rape of nature where then you have nature being the aggressor and humans being the kind of sublimated uh in some way um and i think you know robert harrison in his book on forest he talks about the kind of the ways in which things get twisted and dark in the forest. And again, there's like kind of enchanted versus, uh, versus the kind of dark and demonic version of the woods. And yes, the forest is a site for, you know, lovers and playfulness. And I'm thinking, you know, as you like it, you know, Shakespearean texts are fast and things happening in the woods, you've got all of that going on, but you've also got a very darkly sexual side to what's going on in the forest. And when you think of going back to texts like Ovid, where you've got, you know, so many scenes, um, of rape that are happening, a lot of them are happening in glades and forests in kind of those spaces where maybe no one can see what's going on. And I think that kind of, you know, that extends as well to, to kind of contemporary crime fiction. You know, a lot of the stuff that I'd watch, you'd see people taking people, often women, uh, but sometimes men, you know, I'm thinking films like Deliverance into the woods to do these, these darkly sexual things uh, because it's hidden, because it's clandestine, because it's somewhere that you can potentially get away with that so yeah i think there's definitely um a strong storyline of kind of dark sexuality in the woods for sure let's stay on the topic of the, the eco-gothic then for our final question because we should start wrapping up uh but you are investing a lot in the concept of the eco-gothic so i was wondering what is next for, for eco-gothic where do you think the concept needs to go um, so I think I touched on this earlier, and I think the main thing that we need to do, um, and quite proactively, I think, is to decolonize the eco-gothic. And that's both in terms of uh, critics, authors, uh, you know, making, making space for voices, not only making space, but publicizing and celebrating different voices, uh, and looking at which stories we're analyzing, not just looking at the kind of big names of, you know, Arthur Macken, and Algernon Black, you know, absolutely wonderful, wonderful writers, but predominantly male, predominantly white, predominantly middle class. Um, and I think there is a kind of growing hunger for that. And you know, I can see that in, in the conference we ran last October, the Gothic Nature Conference, I can see it in the latest um, edition of the journal. Uh, there are more and more discussions coming out here. And I think they're 
absolutely vital and I think it extends beyond the ecographic I think it's a huge amount of work we need to do culturally as well but I'd say for the ecographic that for me is where we need to be putting our energies well, thank you very much, Elizabeth. Um, this was a really great introduction uh, to Elizabeth Parker's new book, um, The Forest and the Eco Gothic, um, which is out with um, Paul Grave Macmillan um, in 2020. So thank you very much for joining us and for all of you in the audience for asking such great questions. Thank you so much.